Father, we praise you because it's all about you. We have gathered here together today to worship you and to hear from you, from your word. But we help us to get our focus on you and to see the grand plan you have to bring you glory. We ask that you'd set us on fire. Help us to know what that means and that you would bring revival because of it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to Zechariah chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 11 through 14, page 540 in the Bibles we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through Zechariah verse by verse. And today we're finishing up this fifth vision of the golden lampstand, but it includes the two olive trees, and so we're going to see what those olive trees represent, and especially end times revival, okay? Uh, Being on fire for God, what does that mean? That's a legitimate question, okay? Let me first of all show you a brief video clip of what it doesn't mean, okay, right? So this is what it doesn't mean, Okay, that, that, that's not what we're talking about there, right? Okay, we're talking about, it's an idiom to mean, to represent being anointed by the Holy Spirit with the zeal of the Lord to accomplish his purpose. So it's being on fire for a purpose, okay? So let's go ahead, and I believe the purpose is to advance the kingdom of God. So let's go ahead and look at our passage and then explain it. Zechariah 4, verse 11, I asked him, what are the two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And I questioned him further, what are the two streams of the olive trees from which the golden oil is pouring through the two golden conduits? Then he inquired of me, don't you know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied, that's why I asked. I'm just, that part wasn't. These are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, remember from last week, this is from this initial vision he had in chapter 4, verses 1 and following, of this golden lampstand signifying how God was going to use Zerubbabel to complete the temple. But he had this last part of the vision of these two olive trees, and his question is, who are they? So there's a very specific question there that we want to look at. These two, uh, it says verse specifically in verse 14, anointed ones. Now that phrase anointed one is the, the, the phrase messiahs. Okay, The idea of messiahs or anointed ones is found throughout the Old Testament. There's many people that are actually called anointed ones in the Old Testament. Sometimes kings, uh, priests, prophets, etc. And even Cyrus is called a messiah, an anointed one. And he was a pagan king, but anointed for a purpose. Okay, now... Many times, though, the Bible in the Old Testament refers to a specific Messiah uh, to come, and that's obviously Jesus, right? 
Okay, But this idea of being anointed, anointed by the Holy Spirit for a purpose. Okay, Now, who are then, this question, he asks it and asks it again, who are these two olive trees? And then we also want to see how do we apply it to our own lives. It's not just an academic exercise to find out what uh, it meant back then. We want to see how do we understand this. And what we've seen, just like several other times in Zechariah already, we've seen that there are multiple fulfillments of this prophecy. It doesn't just refer to one fulfillment at that time, but there is a fulfillment at that time, a further fulfillment at the time of Jesus, and then an, an, another fulfillment in the end of time, okay? And we'll see that very clearly here in this particular passage in just a moment. Now, I do want to stop and say, sometimes I get a little technical, right? Okay, and the reason I do that is I don't just want to tell you what to believe. I want to teach you how to dig into the Scriptures to believe and understand what it's saying. Okay, I don't want to just tell you. Now, other times it's just because that's who I am. I'm technical. Okay, but, So you can forgive me for those times, but the times, and this is one of those that's important, is we need, I want to help you understand this book the way God meant for us to understand it, and so that you can then go back and dig in and really gain from it, okay? So there are multiple fulfillments of this particular question, who are these two olive trees, okay? So the first fulfillment the initial fulfillment is in Joshua and Zerubbabel, that he is referring to Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor of Jerusalem. Okay, now, uh, there are some scholars who disagree on that. They would say, no, it's not Joshua and Zerubbabel. It is Haggai and Zechariah, the two prophets of that time. Remember, this is the time period when the Jewish people, after their exile to Babylon, have been allowed to come home to Israel, but they're still under Persian rule. So they're still under that, that rule of a foreign king. They feel like they're still in exile, and their temple isn't built yet, so they have no means of receiving the forgiveness of sins. Okay, So they're, they're feeling that, they're under that, and God is using Haggai in the book of Haggai, but also Zechariah in this book, to encourage the people. Now, what's really fascinating about those two guys, okay, is that this is one of the very few times in the Old Testament where the people of God actually listen to the prophets. <laughs> yeah, they actually do listen. They build the temple. They experience the revival that we're seeing, okay? So, so that's kind of a novelty, I suppose. But, but that's, so, so Haggai and Zechariah are very, very important to this. But I agree with most scholars where they would say, no, this is, these two olive trees initially are referring to, first of all, Joshua the high priest, who was mentioned in chapter 3, and then Zerubbabel, who's mentioned in chapter 4. So because we have that, the high priest in the priestly order, and then Zerubbabel under the leadership order, uh, and the two together are the two uh, olive trees that bring about God's purpose. Okay, so and God uses them to rebuild the temple. 
So we see here that uh, they actually do accomplish this. The temple is rebuilt so the people have a means of forgiveness for their sins so they can get saved, so to speak, and on fire for God. And so revival came, you know, because of this uh, endeavor here. So God uses them. But the thing that I, I like about this, this is how we can apply it to our own lives, okay, is that God uses the most unlikely of people. We read about these guys, and they're in the Bible, so we think they must have been something great, but they really weren't from everything we know about both Joshua and Zerubbabel. Uh, when we look at Joshua, for instance, back in chapter 3, he was a sinner and a really bad one. If, you know, I suppose there's no good sinners, but you know, you know what I'm saying, okay? But, but look at what he says here in chapter 3, verse 1. So let's just re- re- remind you of what we've covered in the past. Verse 1, then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So Satan's accusing him, and Satan is actually right about his accusations against him. But the Lord is full of grace. So look at verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So look at how he describes Joshua. He's a burning stick. He deserves to be burnt because of his sin. But God snatched him from the fire, preserved him by grace, not because of anything good in him, but simply by grace. And then look what he continues to say. Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. So we see here Joshua, by the grace of God alone, was cleansed by God. He wasn't able to and equipped to be able to be the high priest who offers the sacrifices so the people could be forgiven. But God cleanses him, and so now he is able to be the high priest who offers the sacrifices so that the sins of the people can be forgiven. So God chose him, but Zerubbabel too. You look at Zerubbabel, and who was that guy? Zerubbabel actually was in line to be the king. He was the grandson of a Jehoiakim who was the king before, and so he was in the direct line, should have been the king, but the Persians wouldn't allow a king. They said, we're not going to have any kings. You can be the governor. Lowly position, okay? The governor of this place. So he should have, could have been the king, but he couldn't because of his situation. And by the way, his name even. Zerubbabel literally means seed of Babylon or descendant of Babylon. Now, how'd you like to have that name? You know, under the rule of the foreign kings, etc. So here's this guy, nice guy, but both of them highly unlikely individuals. But God chose them. That's what matters. If he can use them, he can use you, right? That's the point we want to see here. Um, Myself, if you knew my whole past, I should be dead. I shouldn't even be alive. 
somehow by God's grace instead of destroying me like I deserved, he rescued me, washed me up. He's still working on that part. But he can use us, anybody. We must make sure we recognize it's not about me, right? It's not about me. It's about him who uses me or you. Now, let me read something from uh, interesting... Uh, book by Hannah Moore. She wrote a a book called Self-Love. And this is what she says. She says, human prudence, daily experience, self-love, all teach us to distrust others. But all motives combined do not teach us to distrust ourselves. We confide unreservedly in our own heart Though as a guide, it misleads. As a counselor, it betrays. It is both party and judge. As the one, it blinds through ignorance. As the other, it acquits through partiality. And she's speaking of how foolish that is. And yet we all trust in ourselves. See, if you think highly of yourself, if you are trusting in yourself, you're doomed. But if you're trusting in God, who can use nobodies, sky's the limit, right? He gets all the glory, but that's okay. When he can use people like us, just like he used Billy Graham, he can use you, right? So, We can learn from these guys. Joshua and Zerubbabel, literally they're called the sons of oil. Uh, But notice in our passage where they're at, verse 14, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Standing by the Lord of the whole earth. What really matters is who are you standing by? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? If you do, sky's the limit, or at least God's the limit (laughs) as he decides how to use you, right? So in modern lingo, you could say these guys, Joshua and Zerubbabel, were on fire for God, on fire for a purpose. They had a purpose, to build the temple so that forgiveness of sins could be reestablished in Israel. What is our purpose Now, the next fulfillment, though, was Jesus. When we think of Messiah, he is the Messiah, right? The next, let me read from uh, Joyce Baldwin's commentary. She says, uh, uh, speaking of the significance of the two sons of oil, Joshua and Zerubbabel, priest and Davidic prince, who together are the means of bringing new hope to the community. Through the high priest, acquittal is pronounced and access to God's presence made possible. Through the prince, the temple is completed and the lampstand allowed to shine out to the world. Two messiahs 
or anointed ones have their roles coordinated. Neither is adequate without the other. They're equal in dignity and importance. After the death of Zerubbabel, the high priest was to increase in temporal power, for the governors in Jerusalem decline in importance. Now he's speaking historically here. So after this time period, before the time of Jesus, the high priest position politically becomes really strong, but the governors become next to nothing during that time period, okay? Uh, uh, but the promises to the house of David were not forgotten. The people of Qumran actually expre- expected two messiahs, one priestly and one Davidic. So the Qumran community, they were looking for two messiahs because they knew this verse here was not just talking about the time of that time period, but it was speaking of the future. But So they're looking for two messiahs again, one priestly, one Davidic. But the two functions were to be brought together in the one person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus ultimately is the messiah. Messiah, Meshiach, it means anointed one. By the way, Christ is simply the Greek translation of Messiah. It also means anointed one. So Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the ultimate anointed one. At his baptism, his anointing was visually displayed by the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus as a dove. Uh, And Jesus, therefore, is both king of kings and the great high priest. So when we look at the life of Jesus, he's both the king and the priest, the two functions we see in both in Joshua and Zerubbabel. In fact, let's first of all look at his how he's the king of kings. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, It's the last book of the Bible, so just go to the end of the Bible. And if you're in the index, then move to the left a little bit. The, the, the first service laughed at that one, by the way. Okay. That's what you get for telling a joke twice. Okay. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And I love the way Revelation starts, this description of Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And it's very important, that last phrase, the ruler of the kings of the earth, because the rest of the book of Revelation describes how things get really bad at the end of time. And things get so bad, it looks like the enemy's winning. But we're to know from the very beginning, Jesus is in total control, sovereign over the universe. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, even when it doesn't look like it. And we know that because we read the back of the book. He's predicted all this stuff is going to happen, and in the end, we win, okay? So here we see this beginning here. In fact, let's look at the back. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. Here we see the second coming of Jesus, and in Revelation 19, speaking of this, he says, then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. 
A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with a, an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he comes, and then the rest of the verses describe what we call the battle of Armageddon. It's not really a battle. He just speaks, and the Antichrist gets thrown into hell. Okay? So very, very powerful. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we see he, Jesus anointed as king. And when Jesus comes back, and this is the part we need to make sure we understand, or when people die, it's too late. They will meet Jesus as judge if in this life they don't meet him as Savior. That's how critical this is. But now is the time to receive Jesus as Savior because of the work he did on the cross as our great high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, describing Jesus as our great high priest. He, as the great high priest, offered the ultimate sacrifice so that all of our sins could be forgiven, and the sacrifice was himself. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin that we deserved to pay. And he invites us to receive the free gift of eternal life because of his sacrifice. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. He's inviting us now to enter into his very presence when we place our faith in Jesus Christ because we're completely forgiven of all our sins. And we not only are just forgiven, but we come into his presence, into a personal relationship with him. That's his plan. That's So Jesus is first high priest, but he is coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. He's the ultimate anointed one for the purpose of bringing salvation. But interestingly, according to the Bible, there is a final fulfillment of these two olive trees in the greatest revival of all. And we find this in the book of Revelation again, chapter 11, verses 3 through 13. So it has an initial fulfillment with Joshua and Zerubbabel, a greater fulfillment in Jesus as the ultimate Messiah or Meshiach, but also there is a final fulfillment of this according to Revelation in chapter 11, verses 3 through 13. Let's read them. He says, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth, 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Notice he's quoting our passage in Zechariah here. The two olive trees who stand before the Lord of the earth. So in the, in the end of time, these two figures, they also somehow are the anointed ones, the two olive trees. Now look at what they do. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. When they finish their testimony, and not before, the beast, this is the Antichrist, that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So clearly referring to Jerusalem. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth. Now this phrase, literally it's the earth dwellers. It becomes very important, so just hold that in mind. Those who live on the earth, the earth dwellers, will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The survivors, those people that are described in verse 9, the people's tribes, languages, and nations, they get saved. This is a part of the great revival that takes place at the end of time. Now, let's look at these people. It's kind of interesting, uh, these two witnesses. Before I go into them, I also want to share with you what Islam believes about the end times. Because it's very fascinating because we'll see that it's the exact opposite. You're thinking, Larry, why are you teaching us about Islam? I've studied the beliefs of Muslims of the end times events, okay? And what they say from... Now, the Quran doesn't talk a lot about the end times, but the Hadith speaks a lot of it. That's the sayings of Muhammad. And they've collected them, especially early on in Islamic history, okay? This is one of the books, Al-Mahdi. This is written by Muslims, not by Christians at all. And their collection of what they believe the end times will be like. Now, what's fascinating is that Muslims believe that the Mahdi and Esau, who they believe is Jesus. So these two figures, the Mahdi is the political figure, Esau is the religious figure. These two in Jerusalem will reign for seven years and they will defeat the enemies, according to them, specifically by knowledge 
eloquence, and jihad. Those are the three things that they will use to defeat their enemies. They, they, they go on to show, they, they will oppose two figures. They call the Sufyani and the Dajjal. These two figures who are in Jerusalem will perform miracles in Jerusalem, even controlling the weather. See what they believe? Okay, they believe these two guys are bad guys, and in fact, there will be three years of bad, according to them, under these two, the Sufyani and the Dajjal, and the Mahdi will kill them in Jerusalem. It's the exact opposite of what we read in Revelation, isn't it? Almost mirror image, and yet, but Revelation was written before the, uh, the, the Muslim beliefs. Okay, so that may be how we see all this happening. Is the Mahdi and Esau actually the Antichrist and the false prophet who kill these two, seeing them as bad, when actually they are, according to the Bible, God's witnesses? Well, at any rate, let's look at the two witnesses and see what we can learn from them. What we see here. It, first of all, is that the two olive trees witness with power. In fact, they're specifically called the two witnesses. This is why they're there, to witness about Jesus Christ. And they witness with power. Uh, power encounters are necessary. Their power, they were able to turn uh, water into blood. They were able to control the weather, etc. Their But power encounters are necessary, and we see them throughout the Bible and even encouraged in the New Testament. And the reason why power encounters are necessary is because of the condition that people are in before they come to Christ. You see, according to the Bible, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, every single human being who is not a believer is spiritually dead blinded by Satan and under the wrath of God. Now, that's a serious bad condition, isn't it? If you're spiritually dead, you can't do anything spiritually, can you? So God has to wake them up. It has to be God. I don't have the ability to save someone else. I'm just, I'm not smart enough, right? Okay, but... God can use nobodies to do this when he shows up. And many times he shows up with these power encounters. I think of like Elijah, uh, when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and he made that challenge with the, the prophets of Baal and they had the 400 prophets of Baal and Elijah and Elijah defeats them through the miraculous power of God, okay? Now we do want to understand from that incident that it was all by the leading of God himself. In fact, in 1 Kings 18, verse 36, Elijah specifically says, I did all these things by God's direction. We don't just come up with stuff. Hey, I think I'll go challenge the prophets of whatever, you know, uh, to a duel or, or anything like that. We have to be led by the Holy Spirit, but that's why when we're anointed, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, on fire for God, we hear his voice, we step out, And awesome things can take place, even through you, right? So that's how we're to see this, and that's where these two olive trees here in the end of time are also used. Witness his 
by his leading, but in the power of God. So notice that's their purpose, though, is to witness. As we saw last week, or maybe it was the week before, Acts 1.8, we're filled with the Spirit in order to be witnesses throughout the world uh, to bring about this great revival. Now, the third thing, though, I believe we can ascertain from these two is that they spoke the truth in love. And this is clearly taught in the Bible. Ephesians 4.15, it says, speak the truth in love. It has to be both of those things, the truth but in love. Uh, The two witnesses bring a message of impending judgment and an admonition to flee from the wrath to come. Okay, they didn't soften the gospel at all, did they? They included the wrath of God and spoke like you know fire and brimstone, basically, is what you could say. So they didn't soften or, or wimp out with the gospel, but they did speak with hearts that care. And we have to be that kind of people as well. You see, tragically, many Christians today are the opposite. They don't care, and they compromise the gospel. They soften it. They make it palatable, so to speak, but then they never end up sharing these great truths like we see these two witnesses sharing. God calls us to be the opposite of that. We are to truly care for every single person on the planet, and in such a way that we care so much that we don't mind Even if people don't like us, we're going to share the truth in love because we love them enough that it's okay if I look bad or get beat up or whatever. Let me read from Danny Lehman's book, one of, in my opinion, one of the best books on evangelism, Bringing Them Back Alive. He makes this statement. He says, the key to handling rejection is making sure we're getting all the acceptance we need from the Father and not looking for it in the world. By its very nature, evangelism means we are uninvited people taking an uncomfortable message to a Christ-rejecting world where many will refuse it. The glorious good news is, however, that some will accept it if we go out fearlessly trusting that the perfect love of Jesus will cast out fear. So we speak the truth in love. Now, the two olive trees basically, ultimately witness by their death, don't they? They get killed, and their bodies are left to rot in the city of Jerusalem without being buried, but then they rise again, (laughs) and that wakes everybody up. But notice here, their witness is ultimately by their death. The Greek word for witness is martyr. We get our word martyr from that word. Because the ultimate witness is to die for your faith. And God may call some of us here to witness in that way. But we see that with the two olive trees. Are we willing to give our whole lives to the Lord? Look at chapter 12, verse 11. This speaks about us. In Revelation 12, verse 11, it, speaks, it says, They, the Christians, the, the believers, they conquered him. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. You see, we conquer 
First of all, by the blood of the Lamb, by simply trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did by shedding his blood on the cross for us. We are victorious. We are conquerors by the blood of the Lamb. But secondly, by the word of our testimony. As we witness, we conquer the enemy. The enemy wants nothing more than to keep you silent. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they did not love their lives to the point of death, even being willing to die for our faith. That's what we see in the two olive trees. That's what we see in true believers. Now, the true olive trees are part of the greatest revival of all. That's what we see ultimately here in Revelation chapter 11. We see this great amount of people coming to Christ. Now, we see this also predicted in Matthew chapter 24, 14, Jesus, who is speaking of the end times, he says this is what's going to happen at the very end. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The end comes when this great revival takes place, okay, People from all nations. That's that phrase that we saw from uh, back in, in chapter 11 where he says, peoples, tribes, languages, and nations because God wants us to reach everybody. This is what the Great Commission says in Matthew 28. He says, where we are called to go and make disciples of all nations. God wants to reach all peoples. He wants his church to be colorful. Everybody represented in it. And that's what he's calling here. This is his call on us to reach. And this is what's going to happen in the great revival. This ultimate end times revival that... uh, that is, that is spoken of here. We see this in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Here it says, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. We see it in chapter 7, verse 9, where he says, after he speaks of that 144,000, it says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. See, this group of people, and they say, Who are these people, Lord? And it goes on to describe these are the people who come out of the great tribulation because a great revival happens at the end of time. And multitudes from every nation, tribe, and tongue, because this is God's call. This is the great revival that takes place. We see it in chapter 14, verse 6 as well. We saw it in chapter 11. Chapter 14, verse 6. 
Then I saw another angel flying over him ahead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitation of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. At the very end of time, he's even going to use angels speaking the gospel to the people because God wants everybody to come to him from all the different walks of life. This is the great revival. Now, this is in contrast to those that the Bible, as I referred to as the earth dwellers. We're seeing this great revival of these people from every tribe, language, and tongue in contrast to the earth dwellers, the hoi katakuintus epites geis people. Okay. okay, forget it. You don't have to remember that. But that's the phrase. That phrase in the book of Revelation is used 11 times. It's clearly referring to this opposition to groups Absolutely, 100% opposed. Two worldviews opposed. We see it in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10 is just one example of the earth dwellers where it says, they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth, the earth dwellers, and avenge our blood. There is a showdown coming. Satan has taken his gloves off. Our fight, though, and we must remember this, is not against human beings. Every single human being you see on the planet, Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, and he wants them to come to him. We love every person on this planet, we recognize they are deceived and trapped by Satan. And Jesus has the power to set them free. And he will use us if we allow him. But remember, back in our passage in Zechariah, and this is the initial verse that I said was the central verse of this whole vision, this fifth vision, verse 6. Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of the armies. God wants to set us on fire in order to set others on fire for Christ. It's fire for a purpose. It's an anointing for a purpose to advance the kingdom of God. So do you know your purpose Are you on fire? And if not, why? I mean, think about it. God is awesome, isn't he? And Jesus, like, died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, completely forgiven, so that we could enter into a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. You can actually know him personally, have a love relationship with him. How can you not get excited about that? Right? Okay. So I hope if you're not on fire, then uh, maybe we can get a match. I don't know. (laughs) uh, know, I'm just kidding. We saw what I didn't mean by that. Okay. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we do confess that so often as believers, we get sidetracked. 
we get caught up in life and we forget the purpose that you have for us. And we start acting and moving and living in our own strength and then we trip up and fall. So please forgive us. But pick us up. And I pray you'd set us on fire. I pray that you would anoint each of us here for the purpose that you've called each of us to contribute to this this great calling, this great commission of reaching the lost for the world of the world. Help us, oh God, to find out our part and make us witnesses. Use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.